we have only done our duty. May your word live in and bear much fruit to your glory. Well, hello. It's good to be here with you. Uh, my name's Anthea, Anthea McCall, and I teach uh, Greek-type things and um, New Testament things, and I am the Dean of Students, and I also work with um, Richard with the Anglican Institute. So it's great to be with you here, and we've got a little parable before us. And I want to start by um, telling you about when I was a few years ago with a friend of mine. We went to Bandung in Indonesia to stay with some British missionary friends uh, who were there uh, working, and we stayed with them for three weeks in their house. Uh, Rosie and Mark had a chauffeur, a guard, a gardener, and a housekeeper, uh, the housekeeper, Ibu, uh, Ibu Uun came every day uh, except for Sunday and she washed clothes, she ironed clothes, she cooked, uh, she cleaned and she shopped. So Ibu Uun was essentially employed as home help. So Rosie, the missionary friend, had no qualms about giving her tasks to do. Uh, Rosie had come from quite a well-to-do middle-class family in the UK. She was used to having domestic service. But can I say initially, I felt really uncomfortable, and so did my friend. Uh, particularly when we are more than capable of doing the sorts of things that Ibu Un was doing for us. And even though Rosie tried to explain it to us that kind of was a done thing to uh, have you know, these kind of servants and they could afford it and it was employing people, I kind of couldn't really get used to the experience of lounging around um, while someone did all the menial tasks for me. Um, and I thought, could I one day get used to someone ironing my underpants? <laughs> um, I just kind of couldn't get rid of the feelings of guilt. Well, we are so unused to the idea of servants, aren't we? And that is the first problem that we have in dealing with this little parable that we have before us in Luke 17. We are so unused to the idea of servants. Now, some of us, of course, may be from certain cultures where we are more used to the idea of having servants, but for most of us, we've never had a servant, we've never been a servant, and the role of a servant is completely foreign to us. In fact, it's a little on the nose. In fact, the word that Jesus uses here uh, in this passage here can be translated as a slave, if you know your New Testament vocabulary. And, of course, slavery and the role of a slave is really on the nose. It's offensive. And so this parable right at its beginning has a measure of foreignness and even inappropriateness for us in the 21st century because we are really ill at ease with this slave or servant title. It seems so demeaning. Well, uh, in the, the household, in this parable, it's uh, not so grand as having several servants as uh, Downton Abbey might have, or even like my Indonesian missionary friends had. 
this household seems to comprise of one servant, one master or slave. And this servant has been out in the paddocks, uh, ploughing, looking after sheepies. And no doubt he's been up before uh, dawn to make the most of the good light. And he's now getting back to the homestead. He's dirty. He's tired. He's um, sweaty. He's maybe a little bit grumpy like you and I are when we get back from a hard day at Ridley, needing our sugar fix or our savoury fix. And as he walks in the door, the master of the house welcomes him and suggests a cup of tea or maybe even a beer. Oh, yeah, right. Well, that might be the way that I was welcomed back to the homestead after I went to olive harvesting uh, recently at um, our churches. Um, you know, people from church have an olive harvesting of Christian friends once a uh, a year. But that is not the way of first century Palestine, let me tell you. So we have another problem as modern listeners of this first century story. Um, we're uneasy with a servant role, but we are used to being cared for after a hard day's work. Uh, or if we're not used to it, we want to be used to it. <laughs> Um, many of us kind of expect to be cared for. But the first century listeners to Jesus who heard this story knew that there were obvious answers to Jesus' rhetorical question here in verse 7. Suppose one of you has a servant ploughing or looking after sheep. Will he not say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and uh, sit down to eat? Of course not. The very idea is laughable. I mean, where would the meal come from? It's a servant who knows the kitchen, how to prepare food. It's a servant who knows what ingredients there are ready to cook. So it's a little bit like me going to a restaurant. Sure, the waiter might have had a hard day. Sure, the waiter might have been up late the night before. Um, but what I say to the waiter, you yeah, know, come on down, share my chili prawns. Uh, let me fill you up a drink. Um, the idea is laughable, isn't it? No one expects the waiter to look after me just like uh, she or he had looked after everyone else that day. So wouldn't this servant's master say, as it says here, hurry along and get cleaned up. It's just me for dinner tonight. After that, you may eat and drink. Of course, of course the master would say that. But you and I don't feel easy about that, do you? Do we? It just doesn't sit quite right with us. But let me assure you that it would have sat perfectly right with the original audience. Indeed, it would still sit perfectly right with many audiences in the world today, but not to us. Not to us. And so we have a third problem in understanding the parable. So first, we're uneasy with the servant role. Second, we expect to be cared for after a slog of a day's work. And third, our innate egalitarianism just kind of rankles at this kind of mealtime arrangement. It's not fair, we think. How about a bit of give and take here? It all seems so kind of pretentious and pompous. And here's this kind of master sitting up by himself at the table. And here's this servant, stomach gurgling with hunger, 
cooking and serving the food and hanging around until the master finishes before he can start on his own meal. And after dinner? What happens after dinner? Does the master thank the servant for his hard work? Does the servant get any kind of special grace or favour from the master? Of course not. The the servant has simply obeyed his orders and done his duty. But you wouldn't say that either, would you? My bet is that this master is really getting on your nerves. He could have at least said thank you. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I was taught to say thank you. Um, My mother would force me to say thank you. Uh, She made me take tins of peaches over, you know, when I had play dates with friends as a thank you. And uh, even though we may may have had not very much in the the, the cupboard, you know, it was kind of ingrained uh, into you. It's what we've come to expect. And that's our problem, isn't it? We want to be noticed. We want to be thanked. We want to be appreciated. We want to be honoured. We want to be patted on the back. We want to be congratulated for the things that we have done for God. And we're worlds away from the world of this parable. It is so different from our world that it's extremely difficult um, for us to even understand the parable as first listeners would have in its original context, let alone bring it to bear on our 21st century world. This faithful servant has only done what was commanded him to do and no more no less that's what the master wanted him and that's what the master had every right to expect of the slave we'd like to think um, that this first century master was diligent about his tasks and provided the tools Um, and was careful in his role as master, but that is not the point. The point is (coughs) that he is the master and the servant is the servant, but we do not like this. We're uneasy with it. It just doesn't seem right. And as much as we can't get our heads and hearts around this, shows how much our attitude needs to change. For if an earthly servant is to serve their earthly master like this, how much more should someone serve our heavenly master, our living God? But the thing is, most of us as Christians don't typically think of ourselves as servants of God and never as slaves. We're more at home with the language of friendship, of intimacy with God. Think about the prayers that we pray. Dear Father, help us now. Jesus, our brother, our friend. Think of our songs, our our, um, evangelistic conversations. You too can become a friend of God. It just doesn't seem to be so appealing to say to a non-Christian, you too can become a slave of God. 
Have you ever said that? <laughs> Doesn't go down too well. And sure, Jesus, um, in his amazing generosity and grace, does call us friends. And sure, Jesus gives us his spirit that draws us into the intimacy of the very Trinity himself. And sure, Jesus lets us into the secret plans of the Father and the Son and the Spirit for the universe. And not only that, if you flick back to Luke 12, verse 37, you'll see astoundingly that at Jesus' return, Jesus himself will dress as a servant and wait on those who have been looking out for him. How incredible. The Son of Man, the Son of God, will serve me. It's too amazing to bear. But let's leave those truths to the side for one moment because they're not what's on focus here in this parable. Let's put on hold the gift of friendship for a short time because we're comfortable there. We're happiest there. We find it easiest there. We know it well. We understand friendship and mateship or at least we think we do. Let's force ourselves to sit with this parable and its message because if you're like me, you won't like it. For us Australians, it comes across as a severe parable and we buck against it. Perhaps it's because it brings to mind that kind of, you know, old-fashioned um, English sort of sense of duty, which often went terribly wrong, you know, like let's take ourselves off to fight for king and empire and that blind obedience to leaders who just kind of made stupid decisions and whole battalions were wiped out just for the empire. We've seen duty gone wrong. We've seen obedience to earthly masters gone wrong. Or perhaps it's because of our egalitarianism or even our sort of innate sense of somehow superiority reacts against this whole idea of dutiful service. But whatever the reason for our reaction, our attitude to being a servant has to change. We have to kind of get with this parable, don't you? Where it says in verse 10, So you also, when you have done everything that you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. We are unworthy. We're not deserving of any special honour or praise just for doing what God wants us to do. And rather than being a servant as somehow demeaning, can we see the basic point of this parable? That God is the master. We are the servant. You are his and he's given you a task to do. And he expects you to do that faithfully, even though there will be hard days. And even though you will not always feel thanked and appreciated. Can you imagine a servant who doesn't know that they are the servant and that God is the master, who implicitly expects to be cared for? But that's how we sometimes feel. We say, I mean, God, it's not fair. You know, I've slaved my guts out um, all day and now I've got to sit down and 
write this Ridley essay or you know I've done all the right things I've um, done all my lecture readings and I've led my chapel team and then I now I have to go home and be nice to my husband um, or my kids uh, I'm tired Lord you know I need you to give something back um, what do you mean I've forgiven once you now want me to forgive again? Or 70 times 7? What do you mean, Lord, that I, you want me to be kind again, again? Something back, Lord. It's subtle, isn't it? But we can expect God to be our servant. We forget that the master has the right to ask his servants to do his will for his own good pleasure and purposes whether we get anything back from it or not. And as egalitarian Aussies, we actually want to sit down at the table with God right now as though it's our right. We've done our bit. Come on, God, let's have a party. It's time to eat and feast. No, not yet, Lord says. There's more work to do, my servant. Well, at least, God, you might thank me for it. And then in our heart of hearts, when we're in a good place, we do remember like Job did in Job 39, where Job uh, is uh, spoken to by God and God says, where, are you? where were you, dear friend, at the creation of the world? And we realign ourselves and remember that God's the master and we're not. But it's hard, isn't it? Really hard. Our attitudes are so self-righteous, so self-centred, so self-honouring, so self-congratulating. And sometimes it only takes the slightest pressure, the slightest discouragement, the slightest pain before we say, God, I'm giving up. It's time for me to rest from this service for a while. You owe me a favour, God, or it's time for you to wash my feet. And it's hard, isn't it, in our churches to disciple others for whom duty is a dirty word. When it's hard to get people to commit to things, where we don't like to be told what to do, when people expect that duty done brings reward. It's hard to disciple people to obey God's will before their own or anyone else's. Why does Jesus tell us this parable? And why does he tell it here? <coughs> Jesus tells his parable at the beginning um, of his last journey into Jerusalem. Jesus has a long and painful, painful road of faithful service ahead of him he's about to go to the cross but he's still saying not your not my will lord but yours and in this context in this pressured circumstances he's also preparing his disciples for the long road of discipleship and service that they will have ahead of them he knows his disciples will be tempted to give up. 
especially after hard times and hard work. Because isn't that the hard rub for us, to be a servant when you're tired and the pressure's on? Jesus, even in his own life, knows the temptation will be right there not to follow the Father faithfully to the end. He knows that if our service of God is dependent on entitlement of getting something back, we attempted to give up. We're in danger of not going through to the end, of questioning the effort. So Jesus challenges us with this lesson on what's our fundamental motivation for choosing service of God. What is it? And it's a picture of duty, isn't it? Of humble obedience, of not self-determined life, but um, a devoted life to Jesus and his kingdom. Serving him and not looking for compensation for one's merits, according to one's merits. A life where we believe that the master's needs are more important than the servant's needs. It's tough, isn't it? It's a tough call. This picture of uncompromising commitment to a God who is God, our master. But perhaps we can transform our understanding of service. And instead of complaining, of getting into the mindset where it's actually a privilege to have been entrusted with so much, where serving God is actually an honourable and right thing to do, where God is God and worthy to be served, a God who is just and will not abuse his authority as a master over us, where our service in service to God alone as master is perfect freedom, where we don't have to worry about serving other masters. We just have to concentrate on knowing what the master's will is for us today, tomorrow, this year, the next five years. What will benefit the master? May God change our attitude to serving him so that we may indeed be able to say uh, with this parable that we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Amen. To respond to these the Lord's words throughout here, we turn to page 408, the next page in this morning's service. <coughs> And we're going to say this canticle based on John chapter 1 as a way of praising the servant of the servants, Jesus Christ, who came 
to this world at great cost. I'm going to ask the men with me to say the first part of the line after the colon, and then for the women to respond with the second half of the line. This is our praise to the Lord, the servant of servants. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without thing was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home. And his own people received him not. But to all who received him, who believed on his name, He has given power to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of a man but of God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory glory as of the only Son of the Father and from his fullness have we all received and grace upon grace Michael is globally for Europe and locally for Ridley. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have shown us what it means to be a servant. Uh, In our pride, we have turned from you and we have sought our own glory, that in your love you sent your only Son, not to be served but to serve and to die as a ransom for many. Through the humble service and sacrifice of your Son, we have been freed from slavery to sin and are now your servants. Help us to go and do the work that you have prepared for us. Father, help us to serve you and to serve others the way that Christ has served us. Help us to recognize that we are unworthy servants and that we do not even deserve to be called your servants that you have privileged us with this, and I pray that you may help us see that. Father, give us humble hearts to serve you so that we may be willing to do what isn't glamorous or recognized by man, but instead to seek your glory. Help us to be sacrificial in our service by leading us to serve in ways that stretch us and move us out of our comfort zones. And Father, help us to serve joyfully, knowing that we are not only unprofitable servants, but also your children, and that you are pleased with our feeble efforts when they are done in faith. Father, we pray for Europe. We remember when Europe was once fertile ground for Christianity, and you worked mightily through your church in that land, and so much of our faith stands in all the work that you have done through your church in Europe. We are grateful, Father. But Christianity no longer thrives in Europe and it has become very hard ground and the people's hearts are very callous. We know you are working in parts of Eastern Europe, but we pray that where there are hard hearts that you would soften them. 
And we pray that your spirit would be at work in Europe to open doors for your gospel, especially in Western Europe. Lord, we pray for revival in Europe. We know you are more willing for this to happen than we are. And so I pray that you would do this despite our lack of faith. Father, we know you can do this, and so please do this for your glory. If you could use us unprofitable servants for this great work, then please use us. Father, raise up and send more workers into your harvest. Send Christians who burn with the love for you and for the lost in Europe. (coughs) Father, we know there are also many faithful Christians fighting the good fight in Europe, and we pray that you may strengthen them in this difficult time. Help them to see that you are faithful even in the difficult times and give them boldness to continue to speak and live out the gospel. Finally, we would like to pray for Ridley College. We thank you for the great blessing you have given us to be able to be trained and equipped at this college. We pray for the new students who have begun their theological studies. It's been quite a daunt- it can be quite a daunting time, and so we pray that they may feel welcomed and cared for by other students and lecturers. We thank you for our lecturers who do not only work so hard to teach us faithfully, but who also love you and show us how to live out all that we learn. We thank you for another semester and we pray that you may help us, uh, both students and lecturers, in all our endeavours and that this semester may bear much fruit to your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Charles Wesley wrote 8,000 hymns and they changed England. If you do my History of Evangelicalism course, it's one of Charles Wesley's hymns. This morning we're going to sing over a thousand tongues, reminding ourselves that we are servants and that the Lord Jesus is our master.
always standing. I don't say hymn book, but that was dating. We're at point 12 on page 409. Lord and Heavenly Father, you brought us safely to this new day. Keep us by your mighty power. Protect us from sin. Guard us from every kind of danger.